0: Welcome to Paucus's Next Gen, the show where we discuss issues related to young Portuguese Americans ranging from 18 years old to 35. Our goal is to ensure that our culture strives by focusing on the achievements of the latest generation with the hope of discovering their secrets to success and continuing to inspire the Portuguese American community at large. Because in our community, Nosh got next and Nosh got now. Good
1: evening to both of you. Today we have Mariana Brazal, who is somebody who works in history issues, is a Fulbright Scholar and graduated from the University of Virginia, and we're very excited to talk to her about all sorts of issues and being Portuguese American. Thank you for joining us.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to this.
1: Yeah, so we'd like to start just hearing about, you know, your background. What are you up to today? You know, what makes you stand out? Why did you want to be part of the podcast?
0: Yeah, so we all start <laughs> where it all starts. I am. Uh, was born in Lisbon, Portugal, um, immigrated to the U.S. when I was nine months old, so quite just the baby. Came here with my immediate family, and just kind of a driving factor in my life has always been art. Uh, my mom is an artist, my grandma's an artist, musician. So as we were kind of growing up here in the U.S., um, art became the way for me to understand who I was in this country, my family. you know this several sort of identities. So I um, went off to University of Virginia and kind of followed that path, um, made my studies in international affairs, but kind of started missing that tie to art. So the crux of my focus has been tying the two. So cultural diplomacy, you know, navigating these spaces my whole life, kind of found that as my research. So now I kind of brand myself as in the cultural work um, sector. I am an independent curator. I've worked on a series of exhibitions, but also work on a other variety of cultural activities and organizations.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so um, I have two exhibitions. Um, The first one was at the National Women's History Museum, dedicated to telling the story of Latina suffragists and the suffrage movement in the U.S. The second one was actually at the University of Virginia's Fralin Museum of Art, and that was on Brazilian indigenous benches. Um, I got involved with these artists and this art form. Back during my time at um, UVA, I actually had read an incredible modernist piece of literature that really highlighted uh, the role of indigeneity in Brazil's identity. And I do also have Brazilian heritage, so it really kind of pushed me to challenge my understanding of that heritage. And yeah, just decided to dedicate myself, look to art as usual and see how I could, you know, expand representation of indigenous identity, knowledge, practice and cultures through this art form. So kind of a roundabout way of (laughs) how I got into that curatorial sort of space.
2: Very cool. And the Brazilian part of your identity, you want to talk a little bit more about that?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my grandfather is Brazilian, so, you know, have that tie inextricably between the two countries, but my parents also spent majority of their teenage years in Brazil. Uh, my mom in São Paulo and my father in Rio, so I spend time there as well. Um, and so, you know, I was always kind of growing up with these three different cultures, the Portuguese, American, and Brazilian. So constantly trying to understand how they all relate, how they don't, and how that makes who I am.
1: Amazing. and. Yeah, you had mentioned your family has been pretty involved in art so what kind of art did uh, your family members do and how does that differ from the kind of things that you're interested in
0: yeah so we kind of had our hands full and kind of everything so my mother is a visual artist um, abstract artist focuses on a canvas painting drawing my grandma worked with textiles um, she made these incredible tapestries she was also a pianist my uncle plays the clarinet i grew up playing the piano violin my sister the saxophone I also have a little bit of performing arts. My sister was really into theater. She's now a graphic designer. So we kind of got um, just the whole range of arts. And then I guess I just, as this role of, you know, kind of intermediating between between the cultures, I kind of saw my space as a lot of interlocutor roles, kind of that dialogue. Um, And that's kind of where the curatorial part came in, trying to navigate those conversations. So that's just kind of how it ended up through there.
2: That sounds like destiny. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> it feels like if you're all around it, then it's it's got to be, you know, there's there's some genetics happening, I think, too. Um, yeah. So just understanding a little bit more about like curating, if you could just break that down, like what does that look like on a sort of day to day basis, that kind of thing?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, curating, it's like to so the term it means like to care or to create an experience. And so, like I just mentioned, I'm all about that crux in dialogue. Um, My roles do have sort of a second hand where I am constantly promoting social justice um, representations of people's histories and stories that are often left out. Um, It's, you know, close cause to my heart, kind of where I found my work on. So that starts with kind of the topics I choose to curate. Um, My research and focus is on Brazilian indigenous art, just kind of thinking that indigeneity on a global scale, how we can rethink our own Western notion of aesthetics, how they have Different origins. So, yeah, it starts in then choosing the topic. Um, The Brazilian Indigenous Bench Collection is one that I work with constantly, but then also with the Latinx cause in the US and promoting those artists on a day to day. You know, it's things from organizing the whole exhibit, um, getting funding to then actually making the exhibit, choosing the pieces, getting the labels, writing the text. So it's a very dynamic and fun sort of work and you know causes you to constantly think about how you can really communicate between different groups of peoples and cultures.
1: That's amazing and how does one come across these these kind of job opportunities if people are interested because uh, I never really thought about like how to become a museum curator but it's very cool.
0: Yeah, so it's I'm sure there are different ways to kind of go about it. Um, Mine has been a little different. Um, So actually was a pivot with my Fulbright. I was there in February of 2020. And then the pandemic hit. Um, When that hit, it kind of pushed me to question where I want my research to go, the kinds of messages I want to bring in the spaces I want to take part in. So from there on out, I actually just reached out to my alma mater, um, the museum, and kind of thought to get that exhibition in. It took meetings. um, It took me to secure my funding. And then the other National Women's History Museums, that was an internship. So internships are really kind of the stepping stone for a lot of people. Um, very short term, you either get to work on an exhibit or help support the research. But one of the lessons I've learned is just a lot of talking to people. Um, if you see someone who's doing research you really like, or if there's a topic you're really interested on, go to that book, look at the footnotes, who's championing that research, find a way to reach out, um, mutual contacts and just kind of, you know, hearing what people are doing. And then another caveat they'll put to that is that I did end up doing a Latin American studies um, major at the University of Virginia. And I think that really helped me. A lot of people come from art history backgrounds, but I really enjoyed the interdisciplinary nature of my major um, because I really got to grapple with all the intersection of different kinds of subjects and thoughts, which has been key to my understanding of art and diplomacy in this world. I'm
2: I'm a little bit curious just because yeah, and I don't know if your parents were like this or your family around you. I mean, they were artists, so I think they have a this little bit different sensibility than maybe some people's backgrounds, you know? Mine, for example. I remember, like, my graduation day for, like, when I was graduating uh, undergrad, and I double majored in journalism and women's studies. And uh, the journalism was not related to broadcast, And so, if you know, this is why Andrew does the bulk of the hard work here. Um, but anyway, so I was, you know, on my, like, graduation day, and my and my dad was kind of like, you know, women's studies degree like what do you do with that and I think like a a lot of uh and I think some of that is cultural just I mean based on my experiences but I'm curious for you like you know majoring in like Latin American studies I know that the interdisciplinary thing is so big and it's so beyond like sort of like one-way pathway but I'm curious like if you received any like sort of pushback or you know what was their sort of uh response to you you majoring in uh, Latin American studies
0: of course. Yeah. So I was incredibly lucky. My parents are, you know, my champions, my supporters. And I think having them come from that art background, um, I think in my mom's case, she experienced that summer backlash when she went into the arts um, when she was in Brazil and kind of telling that kind of like, what are you going to do with that? What is there in the world? Um, and so I have to credit my parents, you know, for every single decision me and my sister have made. They've been our biggest supporters. And, you know, when I declare Latin American studies, they're kind of like, "Yep, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Like, go out, go research, go see how this world connects. Um, so I've been very lucky in that front. Um, for others who aren't as lucky, I know it can be kind of tough to explain, but I would just kind of say, you know, the world is so globalized nowadays. We overlap in so many fronts, and the only way to truly grasp that is to just dive in and accept the uncertainty or the unclear challenges, because it will just reframe your mind and have you become better thinker worker in whatever area you go to
2: love it. And then, you know, just because you talked a little bit about sort of like providing a platform for maybe uh, voices, faces that have been sort of, I wouldn't say forgotten about, but um, sort of (laughs) you look at the dominant narratives of like, you know, American history and that kind of thing. And so I'm curious for you, like my parents and stuff like, like always kind of like um, lamented that, you know, they teach the same thing in American history. We hear about the same things. And I kind of agree. I mean, to some extent, like the amount of times I've heard about Franz Ferdinand, for example, um, you know, and these kinds of people, they keep showing up. Um, And then, you know, when I got to college, I took a a black women's studies uh, history class. And, you know, that sort of like opened my mind to different ways to conceptualize to what is history. I think a lot of that had to do with sort of black women's art, for example. So I'm curious for you, like, um... You know for me taking that class, there's a bunch of things that I'm like, wow, like this is really what it is. Like, we were taught the wrong things for so long. If there was something like that for you and your education and being so well versed in it, if you could share it with like sort of uh, debunking myths and that kind of thing, uh, if you had anything you wanted to share, that would be like awesome.
0: Yeah, it's oh, so exciting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I would say college was truly pivotal for me as well. You know, you've had such a complicated history. um, And I was there in a time where really kind of challenging that a lot of great student activism on grounds, but a lot of great faculty as well. So um, I kind of alluded to it earlier, but it was this piece of literature I read in a Brazilian literature class, um, which when I got to UVA, actually I was like, oh, mom, I'm going to make a minor in Portuguese, by the way. And she was a little confused. She was a little like, uh, don't you want to do a different language you know you're you know it we spoke it at home i was like no like this is, is an important part of my identity i really want to you know dive deeper into it you know get more critical basically so i was in this brazilian literature class and it was called the um anthropophagist manifesto um by Oswald well it was during the modernist phase of brazil where they were really kind of questioning um just forms of expression, kind of questioning histories. And as I mentioned, at the forefront of it was just a total embrace of indigeneity, of it being just, you know, the center of Brazilian heritage. And kind of, as I mentioned, I was like, I've grown up with this heritage um, on the weekends, you know, cooking the food, listening to museum, the cuisines, but I don't really know too much about, you know, the indigenous peoples, the roots of this country before the nation state even existed. And so it, you know, I just was struck by that. I kind of looked at my professors was like, how can I learn more? Where are more texts? Where are more research? Where are contemporary people talking about it? Um, and they really helped guide me into that space. So really took, you know, another form literature in this instance to just kind of help me to my feet and kind of challenge that. And from there, of course, I've been constantly seeking out. I've done research on the Vargas administration and his um, development policies for indigenous peoples. Just kind of constantly, every lens now I look, I try to be critical um, at who's writing that history, who's getting to tell it.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. And that, it really seems like you've plunged into kind of those intersections and the interdimensional aspects of these issues. So what is, for example, like like a living example of this at your job um, at work, curation, you know, what are some of the issues that arise frequently with these exhibits that you've had to tackle, or potentially, you know, narratives that you've had to kind of, I guess, present more a balanced perspective on?
0: Yeah, I you know it's as much as I'm into art, I think art also upholds this very institutional place um, with a lot of. Eurocentric um, views and a lot of just um, the certain, same sort of narrative. So there are times where I'm like, hey, I, you know, I see art as such a tool, but it is operating in a space that has uplifted these institutions um, so long. So for me, you know, I'm a big proponent in representation, empowerment, but not in a way that it's focused on the person that it's supposed to, you know, mean to not, you know, coming from me in my role. So kind of uplifting voices and spaces. So, for example, in the latest exhibit exhibit of the Indigenous benches, a lot of care was going to it being not our voice necessarily, but the artists in there. Um, you know, showing them how it's looking, how it's the the route is looking, how the labels are, the text. So it's a lot about uplifting those um, perspectives and spaces. But then more broadly, in the space, it's about championing these kinds of artists um, in museums and institutions. So it's a lot of work. It's a lot of kind of cautious liberation from as little from labels, you know, making sure, oh, we have this label, but so, you know, this is how we colloquially refer to it. It's not, you know, the deemed title, what does that mean? So from the deliberate to the larger, you know, narratives of why is this exhibition important? How can we kind of gear then the visitors so they understand the importance of it?
1: Right, I think that's so important. Like, I don't know about you, Kayla, but I, you know, I grew up, I didn't really think much about art and I took an art history class in high school and it was just like something had changed. Uh, You know, let's say my eyes opened. So now when I see it, like go to a museum, like these are not always things that you consciously notice, but I think that when you leave a museum, it probably does impact the narratives that you leave with and, you know, Please. what you learned and how you process it. So what have been some of the challenges that you faced in, in that job?
0: Challenges that I face in the job. Um, I would say it's the, along the same line of wanting to have the lens and the focus um, be one that is equitable, that is representative, that is properly um including these voices and giving these voices the opportunity to speak up so it all kind of relates around that and just kind of trying to always question yourself too you know um, as you go along the way make sure that you know your intentions are good but that there will be mistakes to be made um and just kind of being honest with yourself and constantly learning as you navigate through these spaces
2: i kind of love that um you know you talked about sort of amplifying voices i mean in some ways that's that's really what we're trying to do with this this <laughs> podcast, right? Uh, sort of meta in that way. But you know, it, and I, you know, in the what you had sort of shared earlier, you're talking about implying specifically like Latinx voices. Mm-hmm. And there was recently an article I came across. You know, all these things pop up in my you know inbox about some study that was published. In, it was Politico, and they talked about. Are you you know where I'm going with this already? Uh, but anyway, you know, it sort of said like a large portion. Something like 40%. Don't quote me on that, people. Um, just sort of estimating of, of Hispanic voters find the term Latinx like offensive. And so I was like kind of curious because this is, I work in fair housing, so it's housing discrimination cases. And so obviously, you know, how we talk about people's identities is kind of important to me. So I, you know, I read a little bit on some different articles and stuff that were you know, being shared related to the topic. Of course, you see these sort of politicians saying, you know, harping on and oh, that's why we have, don't have Latinx anywhere in our literature and this and that, you know, mm-hmm. you know how politicians can be sort of they opinions as the winds blow. Um, but, you know, then I saw like another piece because, you know, for me, I, it took me a minute to to understand what Latinx was because it wasn't something that was talked about, you know, in my sphere. But, you know, once I did, I, did, I was like, oh, okay, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> right. But I had read like this recent piece that came out like, from this news uh, recently that was saying like that it was an Anglicization. I'm probably saying that wrong. Excuse me. Uh, basically it was sort of like Anglos taking the term and, and trying to make it their own versus like, and sort of like defies like basic rules of Spanish language and that kind of thing. And so this is why people would find it, you know, uh, offensive. And then, you know, there's other terms that, that this person had proposed Latin. Was like one that I guess had originally, and then of course just Latin, Latin American, and I'm I'm curious for you how you you know how that sort of lands. Obviously, when we ask people these things, it's not I'm not ask I'm not like the politician that says they speak on behalf of everyone, and I don't expect other people to speak on behalf of everyone. Um, But I'm curious for you, like, because when I read that, I was like, oh well, I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense for someone who's like you know sort of a native speaker or uh, you know whether it's Spanish or Portuguese and that kind of thing. And how does that like land and You know, I think a lot of people, you know, (laughs) I'm going to be honest, like a lot of people who appear white, you know, whether they identify as white or not, but there can be a lot of like sort of uh, cultural identity politics that go with this. And so you don't want to be saying necessarily something that people find offensive if you're trying to be inclusive. Right. So I was just curious for you if you had any thoughts on that, just because the very recent uh, article that came across my my emails this week, I guess.
0: That's so um, definitely, you know, kind of a debate um, and dialogue that's been going on. Um, so when it emerged, I, you know, I think it, it came as two sort of points. One, to be more inclusive, you know, with the X of removing any sort of feminine, masculine sort of associations with Spanish, but, you know, Roman language in general. And two, it also came to reflect um, a new identity that I that is, you know, you know, I don't want to categorize it as one because it's not, but a reality of, those of Latin American um, descent um, that are living in the U.S. and whose li- lives have mostly been in the U.S. So, kind of those two fronts. Um, like I said, I don't, you know, I don't know the answer. I don't represent it to everyone, but I kind of, you know, those were the two ways that it came in. And um, I know that there's, you know, a lot of debate, but I think they can be used, you know, interchangeably. Um, you know, I get I get kind of sad that it, it does create so much division. I think that Latinidad is a really tough question. You know, I have a multitude of different identities, um, whether that is, you know, from different countries, but then different experiences that cross act when they're here in the US, you know, as Portuguese American, a Brazilian American, there's so many different identities and how to represent that. So in dealing with those, you know, try to use them interchangeably and just kind of try to focus um, not on the things that will divide, but the things that can kind of bring together and accepting those because um, it is a tough question.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I think in general, like these differences, sometimes, you know, we the line on sort of sameness and similar backgrounds and this kind of thing. I think also like embracing difference. I mean, mm-hmm. I think your story already, I mean, to you know, that's a that's a praise or but obviously like embracing all these parts, different parts of your identity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like it's a, it's a large portion of what it is that you do, you know, it's not just a box that you tick, you know what I mean? I don't know if you feel that way, but.
0: Yeah, no, no, definitely. I think we all have um, certain experiences um, that just kind of shape and inform who we are today. So it's, it's easier to kind of focus on that and, you know, all the complexity to it.
1: Yeah, this, this actually reminds me of a conversation we had in Next Gen very early on, but it stands out to me because it was one of the more impactful ones there's this debate that a lot of our listeners will know about You know, are Portuguese Hispanic? Are they Latino? Like what, what do we count as? I know personally when I was applying to law schools, like some of the law schools literally said, check this box, including if you are from Spain. And I'm like, I know I hate to be confused for like Spanish person, but at the same time you feel like, well, Portugal's like right next to it. It's like literally surrounded by Spain. I mean, how come I can't check that box probably, you know, so what do you make of that? And I know, of course, bringing your Brazilian identity to the table as well, that that creates more complexity and diversity. Uh, but what do you think about the whole discussion within our community and maybe how we can branch out and form connections with other communities?
0: Yeah, it's it's a tough one. <laughs> um, it's definitely not an easy one to navigate. Because um, I do think, you know, Portugal is its own set of, you know, heritage and experiences. Um, and then you do have your, you know, tie with the Brazilian i think in me trying to navigate that i just um i might totally be dodging your question here but i try to like not even focus on that box right of like trying to categorize ourselves on like nationality um i know we are inextricably tied but just kind of trying to focus more on those experiences um and especially now as us i mean growing up in the us but totally dodging your question there but i would say no, that no that no
2: kind of no you're just getting that you're that getting that into box. the end that was <laughs> the conclusion of our i think our our long discussion and with were many voices that were, were being heard. I think and just hearing different stories. I know I don't know Andrew if you want to share the one that you shared in next gen, but just incredible to hear, I mean, to give you a little bit of background, because I, I don't think these podcast episodes have aired yet. I'm like from the Northeast, you know, Rhode Island, Massachusetts area. Uh, so I grew up like in sort of a heavily concentrated area, people of Portuguese descent and a lot of Azorian. Andrew grew up in like Kansas yeah and so you know <laughs> totally different experiences and so how you know sort of that like for example portuguese american identity might manifest itself different ways and i think i think that you just skip to the conclusion that you know ultimately like you know the word doesn't mean all that much <laughs> the experience is really what you know justifies. it's it's sad that it kind of gets boiled down to this you know checkbox but and,
0: and as you yeah. said when you kind of asked like um how to kind of bridge that i mean that's what the podcast is, right? Or the spaces, right? is right? all when we get together and get to share that. Because, yeah, it's, you know, how we even, like, areas we grew up here in the U.S., um, I moved around quite a bit. We were first up in New Hampshire, um, had much more of a Portuguese community there than we were in Texas and then out Virginia. So you kind of see how those experiences kind of shape from where you move. So, yeah, that's a neat space yeah. to discuss that.
1: What I found was, like, growing up, because we were pretty much the only Portuguese people around Wichita, I actually found a lot of, like overlap and and like cultural experiential overlap Uh, with a lot of my friends, especially from Mexico, El Salvador, uh, Central America. It was interesting because I never would have expected that, but, you know, playing soccer, uh, listening to music, you know, we all have music with a lot of accordion sounds. Uh, There are a lot of like little similarities you notice that I think helped bring me together with my friends uh, that you just wouldn't think about necessarily if you were maybe living in like a fall river or a Newark, well, maybe Newark, but, you know, I think each part of the country has, new opportunities to reach out to other communities and that's very valuable
2: i'm curious for you if you've seen any sort of differences in the in the art like is it you know andrew talked about sort of the or similarities or differences within the art world just because you know he talked about the accordion so (laughs) but i'm curious for you like in, in your studies
0: yeah so i think um i'm really trying to push against um the you know the just the grouping um with like aesthetics um especially with regards okay. to sort of nationality um and branding it through nations um so I think you know it you know I I a lot of my crux and my thesis my research is a lot of um things on the interconnectedness on a global scale so I'm trying to kind of sure push, push back against it yeah, yeah. <laughs> So push beyond those um so in terms of our world yeah you know you find connections um. From, you know, techniques. Yeah. But um, I, I, I keep going back to those experiences. Right. And the, the current, you know, thematic waves that are going on in our society.
1: How did you end up like settling on, on benches? Like, how do you how did you find that? How did you end up with that as your focus? Because that's so incredibly fascinating.
0: Yeah, so that actually was a collection that I got in contact with, um, via my uncle in Brazil. Um, and so, um, as a kind of wooden art form, it is one of the more traditional art forms for these peoples. Um, they're used, um, in their communities on a day-to-day basis, but also in a lot of their, um, rituals. So kind of landed on that and I just saw it as like such a potent communicative vehicle for that reason. You know, it is, has such a, a, um, multifaceted, um, being to it you know it's you know it's a utilitarian but also um symbolic and so I'm just kind of laid in that crux of those dualities um to, to you to focus on
2: yeah and the other thing i wanted to talk to you a little bit about just because um you know and what you had shared with us uh before the podcast you t- talked a little bit about getting a Fulbright grant and so i was just curious if you could break that down for people um sort of what it is how would you apply for it you know, how do you find, how do you find it? You know, how how is it sort of employed and used?
0: Yeah, so um, Fulbright, so I think just another point to even make, right, was kind of navigating, um, and I'm going to kind of zoom out and zoom back in for a second here, was kind of navigating um, college and, like, these fellowship processes also as a first-generation um, immigrant. You know, um, obviously my parents helped a ton with college, but, you know, kind of everyone was learning in it together. And so when I got to college, um was really passionate about my research and just kind of wanted a chance to focus on it. Um, So once I got to UVA, I got involved with our scholarships um, and fellowships, um, actually just our fellowships office. Um, And through there, um, usually every school has one and they can kind of do um, workshops or kind of help you navigate all these steps. So I came across the Fulbright and there's two types. Basically, there's an English teaching assistant one where you get to go and to a different host country and you get to teach English at one of the universities. And then there's a research one where you are, you propose your research of topic, you find an affiliation at a university, and then you get the grant to complete that research. Just having this research so close to my heart, I knew that research was always kind of the way to go. So I ended up choosing um, Brazil um, for the benches and finding faculty in Sao Paulo, at the University of Sao Paulo. um, To navigate that, it was a lot of reaching out, cold emails, like I said, reading, finding who's working on the topic um, and trying to find someone that could kind of support your project. Through that, then, um, Fulbright actually is one of the scholarships where you have to go through university, so you have to go through a whole endorsement process. It um, requires an interview and a letter of sponsorship from university, in addition to recommendation letters. And you usually want started like about six months, year in advance. Um, So that's kind of the Fulbright. And usually the grants last up to nine months. Um, They pay for your housing, um, the flights, any extra. And the crux of that scholarship truly is cultural exchange um, and kind of getting people out there so that they can see other people, other cultures, and then bring back that knowledge um, to the US. So that's the Fulbright.
1: So were there any Um, challenges in the process that you would, you know, anyone considering this applying for a fellowship in general? uh, What are some things to keep in mind, of course, beyond the timeline, which is probably an immensely helpful thing to know about?
0: Reach out. I mean, I that has been huge for me, I think, in every part of, you know, these past couple of years. But reach out if you see someone who got one or got a different one that, you know, is doing something you 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 are interested in, just send a message, try to get a call in because people are so willing to talk about it. So I think I was very um, trying to navigate that at first. So I had lots of conversations with people about um, how to go about that. Um, the other thing is just have, you know, your team in your corner, the people are gonna review your, um, your personal statements, the people are gonna write your recommendations. Um, so those were kind of the challenges was, you know, kind of understanding how to go about this, but then everything you needed—like, who is going to be the one to review my statements? Who's going to write my recommendation letter? Um, but yeah, it's just all about reaching out and talking to people.
2: You know, I, I love that you like push back on sort of uh, you know what are the differences and you know based on nationality in terms of the, the art and and we talked a little bit about sort of writing beyond the, the dominant narrative in terms of constructing a certain history or reconstructing it, reimagining it, this kind of thing. So sort of debunking myths, you know, to someone who says, like, no, research is kind of boring, you would say.
0: <laughs> I would say I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um I think and I think that's also just become a neat part of who I am as I was kind of navigating this country too, right? And trying to figure things out. I just became a just as someone who needed to kind of figure out why, like, okay, we do this. Okay, but why let me like kind of understand that. So I think I actually do tie that sense of research to kind of growing up here and trying to really understand things.
1: So your timeline, you mentioned that you actually, did you get to actually go to Brazil before the pandemic
0: happened or? A month and a half I was there. I arrived okay, wow. February, March 21st. I was on my way back. <laughs>
1: Were there any experiences that you got to have within that very short time frame that you really enjoyed and would advise people if they go to Brazil?
0: Oh, I got Carnival, kind of so it was um, oh, amazing. an incredible, incredible time. I, I hold that month and a half so close to my heart. Um, it was a tough one, tough one to process and come back and understand.
1: <laughs> and how did you do your research? Uh, how did that go doing it kind of virtually, I guess? I know everyone's lives was were thrown into flux, but yeah. I imagine something like that where you're connected with somebody on the ground, it would be very difficult. So how did you manage that?
0: Yeah. So actually, um, when we were sent back, our Fulbright was done um, just due to um, just, you know, concerns with the pandemic. So they actually um, just ended up ending the the Fulbright. But I was kind of in that moment where I'm going to come back to the US, but um, the people that I work so closely with are the ones that are going to be getting left behind, are the ones who are going to need the most help. So even though it ended in its official capacity, I stayed working on um, what I could till about August of that year. Um, ended up applying to some grants through the State Department. Um, they have the Citizen Diplomacy Rapid Response Action Funds. So I ended up getting some money to then help support artists during the pandemic. Just thinking through how the shutdown of the economy, quarantine, will impact the market circulation of the economy, um, as they're staying in their community. So got some funds to basically get um, all the materials to make the benches um, to the community safely. And then also helping digital citizenship, how we can kind of start to circulate them and sell them online, getting them in contact with potential vendors and then any logistics of shipping in a pandemic world, um, with concerns over COVID. So just kind of worked, um, from afar there also helped spearhead some fundraising campaigns, um, with the collection of benches, Colesão Bay in Brazil, um, to get, you know, some money cash in their hands to buy medical supplies, food, clothing, um, whatever was needed. So tried to stick, um, stick, stick through
2: it. That's awesome. Um, so tell us a little bit about sort of the fundraising and, and, uh, and so what was the process in that? And do you have any tips for people? I know there's a lot of people that are mm-hmm.
0: <laughs>
2: sort of get into that, whether it's, you know, sales or something totally different. Um, yeah, yeah. Anything you've learned from that?
0: So, yeah. Um, so just kind of one of the skills I developed at university was just kind of finding um, sources of fundraising um, and getting those applications through. So a lot of practice and kind of grant writing just Also asking other people who've done it before, seeing whatever workshops there are. I think that's kind of one thing pandemic, right? There's a lot of resources online now, um, tutorials, how to do this that you can easily do from your home. So not being scared also to apply, you know, you see a source of funding um, and sometimes you are just a team of one. Sometimes you have a team of many, but just kind of not being scared to apply. You have a project, you're dedicated about it. Find that source of funding, write that proposal, talk to who you can, but just submit as well. And you, you never know kind of what will pan out.
2: Yeah, I I am just to go to go back to one of the things you had said like and I might be conflating it so if I am you know tell me I'm wrong. That's won't be the first time. I know you talked a little bit about being interested like in indigenous sort of art and so so we're talking like sort of the origins, right? And then you talked a lot about how contemporary artists are looking at it. I'm curious for you if there was like a tension between those two things and well, like why why those why those two I, I suppose, yeah.
0: Yeah, so there actually is a um, growing movement um, out of Brazil Terms contemporary indigenous artists um the champion of that has been jay isbel um, when i look to contemporary which you know i can definitely pick a problem with even the term contemporary just kind of means um, you know current artists um, producing artwork now so i guess i you know i want to just bypass that term because you know indigenous artists have been artists the whole time and are artists now but just trying to think of you know in these spaces that we do have like how they kind of almost have to brand themselves as contemporary to kind of be included. Um, so that is, you know, kind of a question of the term. But there's a really big movement um, in br- coming out of Brazil, some incredible artists. Dayara Tucano, um, they were just featured at São Paulo's Bienal. Um, so they're really doing um, incredible work on these stages. Um, and so just kind of working along those lines, seeing what these artists are doing, how they're inserting themselves in the spaces. But then what are the reactions kind of from, you know, the, the Western art world um, to, to that sort of
2: action. Where, where can we check out, like, if we're interested in, you know, actually seeing some of the great things you're we talking about, like, where, where can we yeah. check it out?
0: Yeah, so I would Instagram. Um, these artists are incredibly active on Instagram. It's actually a huge source. I follow kind of all these artists on there. So just go ahead and look up their names. Um, They're all, you know, very active on their pages, um, constantly working together. There's a curator called Nayinta who's doing some great work as well. Um, a lot of people just being just incredibly fierce um and doing this work on a quite large platforms but definitely check out um their instagrams
2: have you connected with anybody like via the you know, Instagram platform, whatever. Oh uh, yes, in, in, for your part of work, yeah, have you? Uh,
0: completely. Oh yeah. Um, and Instagram's been my kind of great connector. Um, Brazil, it's you know a huge platform. But even when I was at UVA, we had um funding to do some artist talks. Um, and so you know, as an exhibition, we had some indigenous artists come to classes at you the University of Virginia. Actually, we had Danielle Munduruku, who's an incredible um writer, um, very incredible indigenous literature. He came to one of our classes. We had Joanna Tikuna. Um, she's insane. Sing- She came to another class and we had a panel with Nain Tarana and Mewari Mehinaku, who um, came to kind of talk about indigenous art in the arts sphere. So some of those were made through Instagram. Some uh, were just, you know, contacts I kind of already had. But yeah, you can definitely, um, definitely reach out through Instagram.
1: And how have you found, uh, you know, some of the artists you mentioned, artists stateside that you you kind of promote as well? You know, what kind of art are they doing? Uh, Who are some notable ones? What's been your experience with that?
0: Yeah. So um, stateside, you mean like U.S.? In the U.S. Like you yeah, mentioned so. Latin art, Latino yes, artists in like the you. U.S. So I'm um, going to do a better one. And so if people are really interested in that topic and kind of the on the crux of Latinx art, there's an incredible book. Um, it's called actually on my bedside table right here. Latinx art by Arlene Davila. And she kind of outlines this whole um you know, ongoing issue of Latinx art being invisible um, in the U.S. And there's some incredible highlights, shout outs to people doing incredible work and kind of really makes you um, question what's what's going on in the art world.
2: You know, I think a lot of art is sort of asking those questions and maybe it's Mm -hmm. never finding, you know, the the answer, but it's it's in the struggle. Right. Um, Right You know, and that sort of goes across different platforms of art. Um, What question do you think? keeps coming up in in your work even if it's across different projects necessarily
0: for me personally for the art
2: yeah for you personally sure for
0: me personally um, for me personally it's kind of recognizing um, the spaces I operate in recognizing the privileges I hold that have kind of gotten me to certain points um, and making sure I'm always um, being doing justice being equitable um, being 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 fair. So, you know, everything I do, I really do kind of question deeply the spaces I operate in, how I can, you know, uplift people as well, but also what, who uplifted me to get to that space or what other um, sort of systems uplifted me to get into that space. So it's a lot of um, kind of questioning as I go.
1: How is your, uh, yeah, talking about people who have uplifted you, you know, how have you especially I think about um, asking about, you know, how is your relationship with your grandma, for example, being an artist and all. I know with my grandparents, they've just been like an indispensable part of my life. So has she inspired you in any ways? Has she given you kind of the tools that you need to enter this space? Um, if you have a relationship with her, of course.
0: Yeah, I do. Unfortunately, she has passed um, when I was in high school. But, um, you know, even when my exhibit um, went live as a virtual one at the University of Virginia, it was kind of like an ancestral experience. I kept saying that to my mom because I was like, my mom kind of said that too, you know, it's like you do this, but it feels like part of me and it just was that tie, right? And I could just feel it, you know, starting with my grandma, you know, kind of forging the path and my mom and me. um, It's a very kind of ancestral thing. So, um, even though while she isn't here, you know, so um very connected and you know laid the foundation for things that truly inform my work every day.
1: Yeah, I often feel that. Sometimes it, sometimes it might feel like pressure from the past. Sometimes it might feel like you know inspiration from the past. I don't know if you're the same way, Kayla.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> I think sometimes you know, even for people that don't necessarily aren't going the same fields as their, uh, you know, sort of their grandparents or their parents there is like this sort of like, I don't want to say torch because it's not really quite right, but this sort Inter- of responsibility yeah. to, yeah. Inter-
0: interconnectedness. To, you know, yeah.
2: Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, some of it, uh, we've talked a lot in this podcast about sort of the mental pressures that that could, you know, put on people, exactly. you know, particularly of our generation and that kind of thing. And I do think like, uh, it can be a definite tightrope that we sort of walk. Um but I think like as you know, much like we talked about art, I think it's in the, the struggle that we find meaning, you know.
0: Completely. I, I don't know yeah No, no. Right, right. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, I don't there, know.
0: there there definitely is um a lot of those pressures, you know, as we're navigating all of this, you know, from every every kind of generation that came before and it can be a lot of pressure at times. Um, it can be a lot of motivation at times. So, you know, also finding ways to balance that to kind of escape that um is, is so key and how do you and building on
1: it? yeah of course <laughs> yeah. balance is key yeah right <laughs> yeah uh, building on that like looking towards the future do you have any ambitions to like run a museum someday go back to school teach at all or you know what's yeah. what are in the cards
0: um long term i, I want to get my phd um in the research that i do um rethinking you know a lot of these intersections on a global scale within the art world and then yeah i would i'd love to keep you know, championing this, this sort of idea, whether that is, you know, at the head of a museum, head of other institutions, just kind of each step kind of, um, you know, navigating different spaces on how we can kind of advance um, social justice through the arts.
1: Thank you for joining us on this week's PALCUS's Next Gen. This week's podcast was brought to you by PALCUS, the Portuguese American Leadership Council of the United States. You can find this episode on iTunes, palcas.org, Amazon Music, and any place where podcasts can be found. The Next Gen logo is designed by Silveta Designs. This podcast is produced by Aaron Homem, with post-production by Scott Donnell of Run and Drum Media and original theme music by Pedro H. Da Silva.